All right, everyone, let's go ahead and get started. Because it's almost, yeah, it's, we're, we're on time, we're good. So we're in Numbers chapter 14. We did the first half of it last week. Numbers 14. Sorry, I got a little, mm, this delicious lettuce in my teeth. I wouldn't mind, but there's a camera here, so my vanity won't let me uh, not get it out. So, Numbers, <laughs> Numbers 14, last week. So this is, the, this is the, if there's an opposite of climax, this is it. I don't think lowmax is a word, but th- that would be what this is, the low point of Numbers 14, the rebellion that began. So the people were set out. They were marching out. It's like that scene in Braveheart when he like rallies the troops, and he's got the blue face, and, ah, and they're all yelling, and they're excited. And then as if they all, the troops would then turn and run away or start complaining and grumbling. That's what this happened in Numbers chapters 10 through 13 is the people were marching. They were ready. They were going to Canaan, taking the land, being God's instrument of judgment on these particular people groups who God had said, your time is up. You're going to be expunged from the land. And right when all that was going on, the people start murmuring, the outskirts start murmuring, and God sends a warning shot. Hey, I'm not playing with you guys. Then the, the, the murmuring moves inwardly to Aaron and Miriam, and they openly question Moses' authority. And God, in a, in a clear show of his, I'm really not playing with you guys moment, uh, sets Miriam straight and Aaron and forces them to recognize I'm acting through Moses. He is your leader. There is such a thing as spiritual authority, and you need to obey it in this case. So then... Last week, the height of the rebellion, the spies go into the land. They scout out the land. It's good land. It's everything God promised them. It's everything they wanted since they left Egypt. But it's got scary people there. They don't think they can do it. The armies are more mighty, more powerful. They're bigger, stronger fighting men. And the spies basically say, we can't do this. Not only do they say, we can't do this, but then they say, and we want to go back to Egypt. We had it better. So they look at God's salvation. We talked about this last week because this is a paradigm for salvation and apostasy in the New Testament. Apostasy is not, whoops, I tripped and lost my salvation. Apostasy is, I'm looking at what God has done for me. I'm seeing where He brought me out of. I'm seeing where He wants to take me. And I don't want to go there because the price is too high. So I want to go back to where I came from. That's apostasy. And it's very real and it's what the New Testament authors warn Christian believers against doing, which asks the question, if it weren't possible, why would they warn them against it? But that's what's going on in the New Testament, and it's based on this Old Testament paradigm. So the spies, they reject the land, and the only two that stand up are Joshua and Caleb. And as we saw, Caleb is a Gentile. He's one of the Kenizzites who came out of Egypt with Israel and has been grafted into uh, the tribes of Israel, but he was the one that stood up and just said, we can do this. We should do this. Don't rebel. Don't go against God. He's called us to this. Let's claim. He, he, was, he, wasn't, he wasn't naming it and claiming it. This is where you got to be careful with people when they'll preach on this. Just name your battle. Name your Canaan. And God will give it to you. No. God had already called them to that particular promise. So if God has given a promise, yes, you stand on that and you claim it. But if you just want a new Benz, don't claim it and expect God to follow suit just because you said some words in Jesus' name. Okay? There was a promise 
that was given. And more than that, there was a covenant relationship. Israel had entered into a contract. Israel had gotten married. Israel had gotten married to God in the desert. The desert was their honeymoon phase, bringing them out of Egypt. And God will use that imagery all throughout the prophets to describe his relationship with Israel as one of a marriage. And Israel turning away is turning back, is turning back to the foreign gods of Egypt, turning back to spiritual adultery. And that's why God even says in this point, they have been unfaithful to me. And he uses the word for, for prostitute to describe their unfaithfulness in this passage. It gets masked in translations, but it... And, and, just translated as unfaithfulness, but it has a sexual connotation because that's the image God's using. I'm your, I'm your husband. I've brought you out of slavery. I'm, I want to carry you across the threshold of our new home together. And Israel's like, no, we don't want that. We don't, it's too scary. We don't think you can do it. After he has just brought the mightiest empire in the history of the world up until this time to their knees through the ten plagues, Israel has rebelled against him, has complained against him, has murmured against him ten times now. So it's almost like this matching of the exodus with the rejection of the salvation that God wants to give them. That's where Israel finds himself. So God actually threatens, as we saw last week, to wipe them all out and start over with Moses. And he offers Moses, hey, I'll build up my people through you. The seed of Israel, the seed of Abraham rather, can still continue because Moses is part of that seed of Abraham. The seed of Abraham can get down to one faithful person and if, as long as that one person is faithful, the seed promise can continue on. And that's of major importance when you get to the New Testament because Jesus will actually take upon Himself that entire identity of the faithful Israelite. And He will be the one person who is the one true seed of Abraham into which or through which God rebuilds His people and, and then invites all nations and tribes and languages into fellowship with. So this is always keep the big picture in mind of biblical theology and where things are headed as we look at the details. So you want to look at them at both levels because there's some major stuff going on in history of the world salvation level stuff. But then there are the, also the individual aspects of the text which are easy to get bogged, in, bogged down in. So we saw last week God said, okay, Moses, Moses intercedes. The people that have been rebelling against him for the past two chapters, he intercedes for them and begs for their life. And, uh, and God actually listens to Moses. It's a beautiful passage. Abraham's done it. You remember those of you that were here for Genesis when God was going to destroy the cities of the plain and Abraham begged and actually bartered God down. Said, God, spare it if there's 50 righteous people. And God's like, okay. Okay, God, what if there's 20 righteous people? Okay, well, what if there's only 10? God let himself be bartered down for the sake of sparing the innocent because God is always a God who does desire to spare the innocent and not punish the innocent for the sins of the guilty. Now, the innocent many times suffer for the penalties or the ramifications of the sins of people. But that's not the same as God saying you are suffering for their sin in the guilt sense. That's something to keep in mind. It's a weird and hard balance to hold, but we have to hold it. When God promises go into Canaan, you know, I'm going to bring my judgment on these nations. God will give these commands that seem horrendous, like wipe them out, everything that breathes, man, woman, child, this and that. And, and that language, that totality language, which is hyperbolic, strikes us as like, whoa, that's really shocking, God. Why, how can you do that? But then you'll read passages where not everyone is killed, where God does spare men, women, and children who turn to Him. And you realize, oh, the language is intentionally 
um, extreme, but there are always exceptions if people are turning to God. So it's, it's, it's something to keep in mind. It's how it's, the Old Testament is filled with it, but we get some misconceptions about God if we press all of the language to its full literal value every time we read it. Rather, God is saying, I'm bringing judgment, but I am the God. I'm the judge of all the earth. I will do what is right, as Abraham recognized. And God never desires that the innocent perish for the guilt of the wicked. And so God can distinguish. And even here in this punishment, God is going to punish the people as a whole. The text says all the people rebelled. But then in the same chapter, we know that that's not literally true because there were at least two of them who didn't, Joshua and Caleb. So what it's saying is... Overall, the people as a whole were rebelling, but there were exceptions, and two of them get named. Then we're going to find out when God, with his punishment, that he reveals to the people that there will be other exceptions as well. So, uh, let's back it up to chapter 14, verse 20. The Lord replied, this is after Moses has begged for forgive the sin of the people and pardon them. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs I performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me contempt, with contempt will ever see it. That's the underlying key. None who have treated me with contempt. But, verse 24, but because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. Since the Amalekites and the Canaanites are living in the valleys, turn back tomorrow and set out towards the desert along the route to the Red Sea. In other words, go back the way you came for now because you're not going to, I'm not taking you this way. There are these strong, heavy people. You are under my punishment now. So my protection that would go before you and conquer these people is not going. That's what God's saying. Okay, you, you've, you have forfeited this opportunity. You have given back your salvation in this sense. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I've heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very things I heard you say. In this desert, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. So there's the qualification now. So God said, okay, you, you said, oh, it's better if, we, if only we had died in the desert. That's what they had said last week. If only we had died in the desert. God says, okay, you are going to die in the desert. You asked for it, you're going to get it. But then he clarifies, Everyone, all of those, all of you who were counted in the census, the census that begins the book of Numbers, which we saw in the first chapter. So he's focusing. This is the focus. God's focusing. These were the people God had called, had enlisted into his army. They had seen the might. They had seen the works of power. They had sent spies representing them into the land. And they had rebelled. So they are the ones who bear the brunt of this punishment. They are the ones who will die in the wilderness. There's a question about among, among interpreters. So are the Levites not included in this? Because you remember the Levites were not counted in the census. And some interpreters say, no, the Levites aren't included in this. 
that they don't bear the brunt of the punishment, that, that the ones who are going to die in this next generation are the ones who rebelled, those soldiers who refused their orders, so to speak. Others say, no, it's, it's everybody. This is a way of just speaking in generally of all of the Israelites who are adults, 20 years old and older. Everybody, all of them are going to die, and their children are going to be the next generation. Either way, it works. Um, so God says, all those 20 years or more who were counted in the census and who has grumbled against me, verse 30, not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As, your ch- as for your children that you said would be taken as plunder, because they were like, oh, and our children, they'll take them as plunder. Uh, I'll actually, I'll bring them in to enjoy the land you rejected. But you, your bodies will fall in the desert. And that word is literally, I believe, your corpses will lie in the desert. It's, a, it's like a battlefield imagery of like a dead corpse. It's like, think like after Gettysburg or something, you know, where you've just seen those pictures of just corpses everywhere. That's the image God's painting for them. Like, yeah, you were so afraid you're going to die if you go fight the Canaanites. Well, that's actually going to happen to you. Only it's not going to be because of the Canaanites. It's going to be as you die in the desert. So it's, God is, is very, he's, he's forgiven. This is the key. He's forgiven the people as a whole. But he does not leave the guilty unpunished. The specific ones who rebelled are going to face the judgment that comes from rejecting the covenant promises of God and trying to rebel by killing the people that God had put over them in authority. Remember, they tried to kill Moses and Aaron and Caleb and Joshua. So this is not just, oh, we don't want to do this, and God goes, ah, I'll destroy you. It's not like that. That's how people caricature the Old Testament. Those are people that don't read the Old Testament, or at least don't read it well. God has given them time. He puni- the punishment matches the crime. Lex talionis, the punishment fits the crime. So God's going out of His way to show that this punishment is fitting the crime that they've committed. And rebellion against your suzerain Lord, which is they are in a suzerain treaty of the ancient Near East, would bring about death, with no exceptions. What about Oh, he's, gonna, he's not punished in this. Later. Moses, Moses messes up later. We're not there yet. Yeah, yeah, he's saying Joshua and Caleb are going to go because he knows that's going to happen. But Moses and Aaron aren't. Aaron, for, we'll see why, and Moses will. Moses, at this point, Moses is. Moses is still good at this point. Yeah. So, uh, verse 32, but you, your bodies will fall in this desert. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years. That's how long Moses was a shepherd there, by the way. They're still in Midian area. So they're going to relive Moses' life. Uh, your children will be shepherds here 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness. That's the word that's the, the literally suffering for your prostitutions is what it literally says. It uses that verb zona, which means to, to prostitute. Uh, until the last of your bodies or your corpses fall in the desert. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it's like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to the whole, this whole wicked community, which is banded together against me. They will meet their end in this desert. Here they will die. So the men Moses had sent to explore the land who had returned and made the whole community grumble against him by spreading a bad report about it. So the, the actual spies, the, 11, uh, the 10 spies. These men responsible for spreading the bad report about the land were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. 
of the men who went to explore the land, only Joshua son of Nun and Caleb son of Jephunneh survived. When Moses reported this to all the Israelites, they mourned bitterly. Early the next morning, they went up toward the hill country. We have sinned, they said. We will go up to the place the Lord had promised. So now they want to go after they've seen the ones die of plague and God said this is going to happen. Okay, God, we didn't mean it. We were just kidding about the whole rebellion thing, the trying to stone Moses thing, the complaining ten times in the wilderness. Just kidding. We're ready. We'll do it now. Every parent knows there comes a point in time when you have to carry out the punishment or else it means nothing. And your child will say anything they want to get out of the punishment. And that lets you know it's the fear of the punishment, not a true repentance of heart that's the issue. And so every good parent will say, nope, I recognize that you're sorry and you're going to get a chance to do better, but I'm still going to spank you. Or parents today, I'm still going to ground you. We got spanked. But regardless, um, so they said, we'll go up to the place the Lord promised. But Moses said, why are you disobeying the Lord's command? This will not succeed. Do not go up because the Lord is not with you. You'll be defeated by your enemies. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites will face you there. Because you've turned away from the Lord, He will not be with you and you will fall by the sword. So Moses flat out tells him, too late. You've already rejected this plan God said, go back the other way. Now you're going to double down on your disobedience. And, and say, no, no, okay, no, we're going to go, we're going to go. And God's telling them through Moses, don't go. I'm not going to be with you. Do not presume upon my presence just because of who you are. Just because you're Israelites, don't think that I'm on your side. Because I'm not. I'm against you right now if you do this. These are strong words, but they have deep theological implications when we start to think about what defines the covenant people of God and what defines God's promises. It's covenant obedience, not who you were born to or what tribe you're from or what your parents' names are or, or that you got baptized when you were a baby or whatever it is. It's ongoing obedience with God is what determines standing in the covenant. And ongoing outright disobedience and rebellion nullifies your ability to receive the promises God's given. It's just basic, basic contract. If you tear up the contract, you've torn up the contract. You don't get what's promised in the contract. So God's telling this to Israel. He's warning them, but they don't listen. Verse 44, Nevertheless, in their presumption, they went up towards the high hill country, though neither Moses nor the ark of the Lord's covenant moved from the camp. Then the Amalekites and Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and attacked them and beat them down all the way to Hormah. And Hormah means destruction. It, it later, it's a place, but that's what the name means, destruction. Hormah, it's the same word that will be the root when God later will tell Israelites, don't take any treasure, burn it all. Make it all as a gift, a devoted offering to the Lord, like burned up, like destroy it. That's the same verb. It comes from that root word, harem. So harma is like destruction. And it's fitting. That's where Israelite got chased all the way to. So it's like saying you got beat to smithereens, right? I don't even know what smithereens is. I don't even know if that's a name. I don't even know if that ever originally was a place. But it's that idea. It just means like just getting totally demolished. And so that's what happens with Israel. They presume, they go up. <clears throat> Israel attempts to go and face their enemies, but the ark and the covenant mediator stay in the camp. 
and Israel is just scattered, the ones who do go up. That's huge in terms of understanding the dynamics of the later covenant wars or holy wars that Israel is going to engage in. They are never commanded to go to war without the presence of God. God is their general. As Israel is living under God as their king, later they'll get a king, they'll transition to monarchy, that king will give orders, and God will say, this is not going to be good, this is going to be a mixed bag, but you wanted it, so you're going to live with it. So then that's going to be like when they go out to war for less than uh, stellar motives. But at this point, God's their commander-in-chief. He's the one who's leading them. So if the ark doesn't go, the cloud and the fire don't go, then you don't go. If you do go, you're going without God's protection. And without the protection of God, without the covenant relationship, Israel is just a rabble of former slaves. That's the key. Without that covenant relationship, they are nothing but what they were when God found them. Pitiful, unequipped slaves who could not beat an army to save their life. With the army of God, or the ark of God, with the presence of God, when they're walking in obedience and following the commands of God as He's leading them, they're unstoppable. They can't be touched. So it's, it's a key thing that Israel is going to have to learn throughout their history. They're going to, and you see this even today in, in both Israel, the nation today, but also in the church, people presume on, well, we're, well God's on our side. We're, we're God's people. You know, God's got my back. Jesus is my homeboy, right? He's got, no, 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 no. God is showing, and this is both Testaments, Old Testament and New Testament that you can't ever presume on the past at the expense of present obedience. doesn't matter who. God rescued all of those spies that rebelled. God brought out all of those spies that rebelled. Brought them out. Saved them. Was going to bring them into the land. Their rebellion put an end to that. They rejected what God wanted to do for them. And so that's a huge lesson theologically, ethically. You know, we, we, we can't presume on God's backing whatever we decide to do. It's a tough lesson. It's a tough thing to hear because we're used to sermons that talk about, you know, when you doubt God, just lean on the promises. Yeah, leaning on the promises means you are in a relationship with God right now. And if you are in a relationship with God right now and things seem like they're not making sense, then you look to the past, you remember what He did, and you know that right now, I'm in relationship with God, I'm trying to be obedient, I'm doing what I can, and there's nothing before me, so I, I have to look to the past. But that's different than saying, it doesn't really matter what I do now, because that happened back then, so I'm good. Once saved, always saved, baby. I said the prayer, I ran up in junior high, I got dunked twice. I got rebaptized three times, so it stuck. Right? That, that is when you start to presume on God's grace. And you see people who sit in church week after week after week, and their lives show no evidence of change. And you just have to wonder are you presuming on God's grace? You get emotional when the songs start, and you wave your hands, and you cry when there's an altar call. That means nothing to God. Emotional response in the heat of a moment during a manipulated worship service with smoke and lights and soft music and chords that make you want to cry already? That means nothing 
if it's not accompanied by genuine covenant obedience the next day when you're sitting in traffic. when you're having bad service somewhere and you're just tempted to lay into this person who's working a minimum wage job to feed their kids, but right now they're making you wait and you're not happy. Like That's when what we believe in our faith is put to the test. If you can't be a Christian when somebody cuts you off in traffic, are you really a Christian at all? I mean, I'm just going to ask that question. I won't answer it, but I'll ask it. You know, if we can't be a Christian in the day-to-day stuff, what does it matter? Everybody can be a Christian in church. Everybody could be an Israelite sitting around the tabernacle when the fire of the Lord was falling and they were bringing their sacrifices and having a big Thanksgiving dinner. Everybody can be a people of God then. But when God says, now go fight these fearsome warriors that I'm sending you to, that's when their faith was put to the test. So, this is a, I love numbers for this reason because what it, it, it's so, this is, this is part of the reason why, again, if you weren't here the first week when we started Numbers, Numbers is the book that the New Testament quotes to describe the ongoing experience of Christians today. I mean, Christians in the time of Jesus. The parallel to Christians living in the world is Numbers. The people. But it's, it's the, that's the, the paradigm for how we should live. You've been brought out of captivity from Pharaoh, meaning sin. You've been taken through the miraculous waters of cleansing, we call baptism. You've been led into the wilderness with the promise that you'll inherit the land where everything will be amazing. The promise of future renewed heavens and earth and being with God. But in the meantime... You're in a wilderness, and you're going to be surrounded and facing people who are hostile and overwhelming, and, and you know, you're going to have doubts. Where are we going to get our food from? Where are we going to get our water from? How are we going to overcome these fearsome warriors? That's the situation that Israel found themselves in. The only thing they had to go on was that they had the God of the covenant dwelling in their midst in that camp. Now in the New Testament, the only thing we have to go on is we have that same God, that same Spirit but he's not dwelling in a tent in northwest Saudi Arabia. He's dwelling in the tent, his people together, in and among us. So do you see the parallels of the book of Numbers? When you're reading Numbers, you're reading your spiritual history if you're a follower of Jesus. doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. Follower of Jesus, Numbers is your family tree. And we are to learn the lesson and not repeat the, the, the behaviors and the patterns and the practices that this generation in Numbers repeated. That's the warning. Read through Hebrews sometime. As we're doing this number study, just glance through the book of Hebrews. Read through some of Peter's letters. Read through some of Paul's letters. See those allusions back to Numbers and how God wants us to, to have this for our edification today. Even though you never hear sermons from Numbers because <laughs> it's, it's tucked away. It's obscure. It's back in the part of the Bible we don't really read. But it is so relevant so relevant. Israel in the wilderness. So you have to go back to the wilderness now, to your jobs, your families, your kids, whatever. But come back next week. We're going to see that God, next week's going to be weird. It's like God has this big climactic event, and then next week there's like some laws again and some rituals. So it seems out of place. But what it's telling the people is God saying, 
I haven't completely rejected you. There's a glimmer of hope. Let's review, and then we're going to move forward. That's how God's treating His people. We'll see that next week. If you want some food, there's plenty left. Y'all have a great week.